Welcome to our season on biotech and food. Scientists and founders use cutting-edge technologies to make ingredients with less. Less water, less land, less greenhouse gas emissions, but also with more. More climate resilience, more functionality, more nutrients. Here are some technologies you will understand by the end of the season. Precision, biomass and gas fermentation. Molecular farming and using cells as machinery. In this episode, we will clarify a bunch of these terms. But let's zoom out for a bit of context. About 40 years ago, my parents lived in a hut in Kazakhstan. They had chicken and a cow and were growing their own vegetables and fruit. My older brother and sister had to help out by taking care of the animals and garden. Sounds dreamy? While you may have a romantic image of a cute farm in your mind, It was hard for my parents. It's less cute when one's own food production is not a hobby, but a necessity for survival. This has been the life of most families throughout most of human history. It's easy to criticize the food system, but let's take a moment to be grateful and in awe at the food security most of us had our entire life. This required an insane increase in yields. One major era of progress has been the machine era. The era of tilling tractors and monocultures created centralized farms with the upside of reducing some of the hard manual labor. Pesticides and nitrogen fertilizers kicked off the chemical era in the Western world. During the 20th century, this saved millions of people from starvation. The percentage of farmers decreased, freeing up the labor force for industrialization. But of course, machine-led intensive agriculture has a lot of issues. One can argue we're stepping in, or we are already in the midst of the era of biotechnology. The main lesson I learned from my research in technology history is that every upside has a cost. Everything we do, each technology has some kind of downside. That's why we need diversification. Instead of one, we need to think about many approaches, create a portfolio of solutions. Part of this portfolio includes biotechnology. We will look at solutions for creating known and new ingredients to produce proteins, enzymes, or lipids, aka fats, with old and new methods. In this season, you will learn about the different technologies, then some critical perspectives, and later hear about some exciting use cases like cacao and honey. Now you will hear from Irina Gary. She is the CMO of Change Foods, an Australian precision fermentation startup working on making real cheese without the cow. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. Irina, it's lovely to have you on Red to Green. It's always good to be here. So we've had Irina on before in Season 3 on promoting alternative proteins, which, by the way, fun fact, has been one of the most popular seasons of Red to Green. I think it's so niche that it was recommended a lot because there's not much research and uh, resource uh, on 
the consumer acceptance of alternative proteins. And your episode has been also one of the, the longest of the season and also one of the most listened to. So our first level are big picture terms. So biotechnology, synthetic biology, how do they intersect, interrelate, overlap? What's your viewpoint? So biotechnology is a big field, right? It spans probably five different categories. One is human and medicine. So this is your production of insulin, for example, or vaccines. The latest COVID vaccines were produced using biotechnology. The other one is environmental. So if you look at giant oil spills where we can deploy specific enzymes to break up the oil on the surface of the water, that uses biotechnology. It's a separate one. Industrial use. So whether it's biofuels or biomaterials, right, where we're now looking to produce silk without spiders, right, using biotechnology. And then you can get into plants and animals or food. So just to summarize here, biotech is wide reaching. Some of its applications include human medicine, biomaterials, and it has been in use in the food industry for several decades. But when you buy bread and it's been made with enzymes, a lot of them are produced using fermentation technology. Or you could see uses in specific flavoring compounds, vitamins, etc., where instead of using these massively inefficient system of growing a plant for one specific compound or growing an animal for one specific compound, we can collapse that and use a microorganism. There are three major types of fermentation. Let's start with the traditional or microbial fermentation. This is something people used for millennia. It's using a specific microorganism to modify food. So, for example, beer, you take hops and some sugar and a microorganism, combine them together. The microorganism produces beer. This is how you make cheese, right? You take milk, put in microbial cultures, they modify the milk, you make cheese. Same thing with kombucha, kimchi, etc. So that's been around using microorganisms to preserve and modify foods for millennia. And the second pillar is biomass fermentation. Have you heard of tempeh? It originated from today's Indonesia, probably before the 18th century. Soaked and cooked soybeans are inoculated with a mold, a fungi. And then you eat the entire thing, the beans and the mold. It's a traditional fermented food. And I recently tried it for the first time. I wasn't too much of a fan. It did taste pretty healthy, though. Somebody described the company Quorn, Q-U-O-R-N, as a biomass dinosaur in the startup scene. Founded in the 80s, they used this technology, or shall we just call it a process, to create meat alternatives before it was cool. This is a solid-state biomass fermentation. There's also something called liquid state or submerged biomass fermentation, but we will get into that one another time. The entire cell is the product. So it is a microorganism that maybe you, you found it and you have determined that it has beneficial properties, whether it's high protein content, good quality protein, etc. Maybe it comes with fiber and vitamin B12, like a lot of these organisms do. You are growing the entire biomass and that is the product. So even though they all fall under fermentation, they're quite different once you start looking at the nuance and at the product of that fermentation. I know that a lot of you truly care for the environment, and many of you are founders or want to found. Well, I have something exciting here. The leading VC Food Labs is teaming up with their sister fund Atlantic Labs to launch a Founders for Climate program. 
This is an entrepreneur-in-residence program for climate-focused founders in Europe. You receive pre-seed funding for your incorporated company, mentoring and advisory, and access to their network, which includes over 150 portfolio companies. By the way, the precision fermentation startup Formo, that we featured in season one and season three, was founded by an entrepreneur-in-residence at Food Labs. You will find more info on their climate and food-focused programs at foodlabs.com. Little fun fact, when I started Red to Green two and a half years ago, I totally had a company crush on Food Labs. Two weeks after the launch, they reached out and became the first supporter of Red to Green, and I was like, yay! <laughs> well, no better way for me to say they have their finger on the pulse. Anyway, if you or someone you know wants to found or is founding a climate venture, check out foodlabs.com foodlabs.com and then the third bucket is precision fermentation and that field again has existed for better part of three decades already this would include production of enzymes vitamins different proteins for food production and this is where we use microorganisms as hosts as factories to produce a compound of interest and that's actually what Change Foods, the company that Irina is working for, is doing. They want to create real cheese without the cow, and they need to create the milk protein casein first. So they use a microbe for the ease of it, let's just call it yeast, and they encode the DNA sequence of dairy protein into yeast. These yeasts are put into a fermentation tank or bioreactor, similar to the ones used to brew beer. Just a bit more fancy. The yeast are fed plant-based nutrients and sugars. Instead of producing, let's say, alcohol, they now produce the milk protein casein. Once you create the broth, you need to find the most efficient way to actually extract that compound from your broth. So there's what we call downstream processing. The yeast is then separated from the milk proteins and made into cheese, yogurt, milk, whatever you like. And as mentioned, these yeasts are genetically modified to produce casein. But is this now a GMO? So when people think about GMOs, they think a lot about the use in crops and the socio-political issues connected to the use of Roundup. So having Roundup-resistant crops, which are then sprayed with glyphosate, plus mm -hmm. many other actually much more harmful additives uh, that make up Roundup. By the way, Roundup may be banned in Germany next year. So this is what people commonly think about as GMOs. But in the case of precision fermentation, we actually don't have GMOs, we have GEM. Right. So genetic modification as a concept is going into an organism's DNA and modifying it in some way. That's a super high level. It breaks down into two different buckets. There is a genetically modified organism. For example, your GMO corn that uses glyphosate, where you go into the DNA of the actual plant, corn, you modify it to withstand, in this case, application of Roundup, where it doesn't kill the plant itself. And the difference here is that the ultimate food, corn, that you consume has that genetic modification in it. So therefore, it's a genetically modified organism. 
the GEM, genetically engineered microorganism, or GMM, genetically modified microorganism, is instead of taking a plant and modifying that and consuming that, you are taking a microorganism. So it could be a yeast or a fungi, and you are making a small change in the organism's DNA, but then you're using that organism as a factory to produce a compound of interest. So instead of consuming the entire organism that has been modified, you are using this organism that during fermentation produces a compound of interest. So insulin is made this way. Insulin is a hormone that we wanted to produce so we wouldn't have to extract it from pancreases. Once the DNA of insulin is isolated, it can be inserted into a microorganism. During fermentation, this microorganism produces insulin that is later filtered out and is used exact same way that insulin can be used because it is biologically identical to the insulin you would get from a pig. Same thing is being used to produce certain flavors, vitamins, enzymes, countless other ingredients in our food system. So the difference between a GMO, which is the product in and of itself, and GEM, genetically modified organism that produces another compound, is that ultimately what you end up eating does not contain modified DNA. The organism that produced it was genetically modified, but it is not used in final consumption. Whether it is not used in final consumption depends on the downstream processing and how well that works out. One factor that influences how hard this is is whether the compound that you want to create is produced inside or outside the cell, intracellular or extracellular. Intracellular means that the compound of interest is produced within the cell, so within the confines of the cell wall. Extracellular means that it actually gets spit out in a way by the cell. So the cell exists and it's part of its metabolism. It actually excretes the compound of interest. It depends on the organism. It comes down to calculations. Can you produce more compounds, faster, inside the cell, outside the cell, it just creates a different requirement for your downstream processing. So if, if your compound is locked inside a cell wall, then you have to break the cell wall before you mm. can extract the compound. If it's outside of the cell wall, you don't need to break the cell. You can just kind of get rid of it and filter. So yeah, I'm wondering because I think there may be an influence in terms of regulation. It seems to me to be harder to clearly separate it and purify it if it's intracellular. I think that is something that affects the impossible heme and therefore makes it not applicable for the European market because it is then not pure enough to be considered non-GMO. So if we look at the GMO regulations, in the United States, the framework is different than in the EU. Yes. In the United States, if your final product contains genetically modified material, so piece of DNA that's been altered in some way, it falls under the GMO regulation. So think of your GMO corn. The entire plant has been modified. The corn kernels that you eat have genetically modified DNA. If the final product does not contain genetically modified DNA. It does not fall under those regulations in the United States. So things like rennet, right? We use it in cheese. It used to be extracted from calf's stomachs. We figured out a way to just isolate rennet, make it through microbial fermentation 30 years ago. 90% of cheese worldwide is now used with microbial rennet or rennet produced with precision fermentation. What we needed to do in order to get this to market is just to show that the rennet from calf's stomach was identical at the molecular level 
to the rennet produced by the microbe. So again, you take the strand of DNA, you put it into microbe. As long as you're able to filter it out properly and to show that the final product, rennet, does not contain genetically modified DNA, you could then sell it in the United States as non-GMO, right? It does not fall under that regulatory framework. In the EU, I think the standards are different when genetically modified organisms still fall under this kind of really broad bucket of genetic engineering and therefore need to go through a more stringent review process. They're not all banned, they're not all impossible, they just have to go through more steps and more hurdles in order to then become approved for the market. Sometimes, if your downstream process does not get rid of every single piece of DNA, and there's some of it present in the final product, this is where you run into the issue then falling under the genetically modified product because you have some genetically modified material. Each episode takes many dozens of hours of work. To help keep this resource free for you and everyone else, we need your help. Please share Red to Green with your colleagues on Slack, Discord, or Teams. Or share one of your favorite takeaways on LinkedIn and link to the episode in the comments. I appreciate your support. Let's jump back in. The GFI report from 2021 on fermentation has a very good overview. Well, how many companies does this field have overall? It's about 88 in 2021. And 43 of those are in biomass fermentation and 39 in precision fermentation. What I also find interesting is where they are located. And 30 of them are in the U.S., mm -hmm. Nine in Israel, if you look at the rest, mm -hmm. the maximum the other countries have is four in Spain and then maximum three, like three in Germany, and then it's just three, two, one in individual countries. It's not a lot, actually, if uh, you look at the total space. Well, so I think there's a almost a separate conversation you can have around where is this industry growing and evolving? The U.S. has a lot of positive attributes. That's why these companies are locating here. One is more favorable regulatory framework in terms of path to market. It has access to funding, right? Venture capital is an extremely important component of this ecosystem. Access to talent. All of these technologies require scientists with quite specific skill sets to be able to work here. So it's access to capital, access to talent, access to kind of auxiliary services. So where are your engineering firms located? Where are your experts in bioreactor designs, et cetera, makes a big difference. And obviously the government regulation. So as these companies think about bringing these products to market, where is the more likely consumer? Where is the easier, faster path to regulation? And where do you have access to a bigger market? But then you're seeing smaller countries like Singapore, like Israel, who have made a concerted effort as a nation to bring these technologies forward because they're seeing this overall, this technology as an important strategic investment, both from a food security standpoint, from technological advancement standpoint, from future job creation standpoint that that became kind of the next moonshot. Well, there's actually something missing in this that we haven't talked about and that we will also feature, which is molecular farming. What is it? Molecular farming is fundamentally different from fermentation. And the reason for that is instead of using microorganisms, whether it's your full product or your host organism, you are using plants. So it's plants versus, you know, that third kingdom that we all forgot about since eighth grade, which is, you know, the fungi microorganism system. 
And so when you're using plants, again, traditional plant-based food, you can take a bunch of oats, crunch them up, use some enzymes to help break down the fiber and make oat milk. But you can also use plants as hosts to produce a compound of interest as well, because plants also have cells that, that have their metabolism that can be engineered to produce a compound of interest. A famous example actually is Impossible's heme. When they first started the heme research project, they were actually producing it in the root of the soy plant. And then what they realized is that hey, you have to grow massive fields of genetically modified soy, you have to get to the roots, and guess what they grow on in earth? There's dirt that you have to you know, clear out, you have to process the plant to then extract the exact little heme protein to be able to do that. Ultimately, Impossible ended up switching their process. So today they're using precision fermentation. That doesn't mean molecular farming doesn't work. The easier part about molecular farming is we already do a lot of farming. We know how to grow crops, right? And so if you figure out how to grow a crop and you have a good extraction process that's economically viable, you can produce a compound of interest by harvesting the plant. Another famous example is stevia. The Reb-M element or part in the stevia that's the sweetener can be grown as part of the stevia plant then that needs to be you know, chopped up, processed, and isolated, or it could be done through fermentation. In fact, there was an article recently on, I think Cargill did a LCA analysis on three ways of extracting Reb-M, and one was regular plant, then there was, they call it a bioconversion, so you use the plant, but then you use enzymes to help to extract it, and then you use fermentation, so you use microorganism where you put in the Reb-M molecule and Fermentation in that particular calculation came out way ahead in terms of efficiency of production because of fewer requirements on land, water, and growing a full plant, and then having obviously to deal with the leftovers of the plant, right? Because your conversion is probably a fraction, right? A single percent or less of that. That said, there's an argument to be made that we can use plants, especially widely grown plants like soy, to produce a compound of interest. Well, that seems to be a good roundup. What is something that you keep hearing in the space that you disagree with? I don't know if it's a settled debate, which is interesting, is the business model that our industry is currently pursuing. So it's this Intel inside, right, or branded ingredient model that seems to the model du jour of a lot of companies. And I think the reason for that is this is cool, exciting new technology, right? It has a massive sustainability benefit. And ultimately with fermentation, you're producing an ingredient, right? Even with biomass, it oftentimes is just an ingredient because you need to still add other components to it, like fats and flavors, et cetera, for it to become a final product. Very, very few companies are pursuing kind of end-to-end -end tech to final product business model, meaning they're not launching branded food products, they're just launching an ingredient. And so with that, an argument can be made that being an ingredient company, if ultimately your core technology is ingredient, being an ingredient company makes sense. But I think we have this idea that a branded ingredient is commands a higher premium, is cooler, it's hipper, it maybe gets more investment money. And so a lot of the times right now, a few companies that are in market, whether, you know, Perfect Day is, is obviously the biggest example of a branded ingredient model, is kind of where a lot of our companies are. Very few want to be fully branded product and very few are just saying, look, we're just going to be commodity ingredient. The reason against the commodity ingredient is you have to play at a really low price point because if 
in a team, you got to really get up to scale and have high yields and low costs because then you're competing on low digit margins on scale. And branded is quite challenging to execute because you're essentially building three different companies in one, right? You're building the biotech company, you're building the food manufacturing company and the distribution marketing company. And if you look at food CPG, those tend to be broken up into separate companies because it is really hard to have expertise and scale and know-how to be able to do all of them at once. And so we're kind of, as an industry, I think, landed on this idea of a branded ingredient business model. The reason I struggle with it is because in food specifically, there are not really many examples where that's worked successfully at scale. If you look at computer industry, absolutely. Intel inside gives your laptop an extra zing of verification that chip is going to be somehow faster. There's just a perception. But it's a, it's a technology. Ultimately, you just kind of look at it and you say, okay, Core 7, i7 processor, check. I don't think it works in food the same because the holistic food experience overrides any ingredient experience. People do not eat heme. They eat Impossible Burger, right? Mm. They don't eat ice cream made with Stevia Reb M, made with precision fermentation. They eat <laughs> a low-calorie sweetener ice cream that doesn't have many grams of sugar. And I think this is where we as an industry are struggling because we're trying to apply a technology first thinking into a different category. And I think ultimately, again, in a branded food environment where as a consumer, you're buying a food that is a holistic experience. And when you think about heme or casein or whey protein, Ultimately, that's not what the consumer will buy. And so to me, this idea of branded ingredient feels misplaced in some way. When you have one company that makes an ingredient easy, that company could dictate terms. When you have six companies making the same or similar ingredient, it becomes a much harder conversation to see if consumers will care, if this will carry a value or not. And so I think ultimately, brand is where it is for consumers and it tends to be whole food not or whole product not just an ingredient yeah i'm also a little bit worried how much we are in our bubble in terms of thinking that oh everybody is so interested in the processes involved in their food production infamous example right rennet we've slipped that in Right. 30 years ago, we were making animal based rennet. Now we're all pretty much all non-animal rennet. Nobody knew about this. Nobody cares. The industry just, just kind of put it in. They said, look, it's cheaper, better, faster, more consistent product. It was widely adopted globally. And if you ask pretty much anybody, even people in the food industry, most do not understand the nuance, right? Or vitamin B12. When you buy your cereal, there's vitamin B12 in it. Do you really care how it was made? I doubt it. And so I think sometimes we may be doing too much explaining, maybe too much detail on beyond the, the layers and layers of technology where it actually sounds scarier than it should be. I'll give you another example. How many people understand how pea protein isolate is made? Really? How many people understand what extrusion is? You know, how many people people are like, oh my gosh, pea protein, great. Non-animal rennet, scary, right? Is it? But if you go into a food production facility, it is a food production facility. There are no green trees growing. There's no farmers running around, et cetera. It's, It's steel and it's clean and it's extracted ingredients. 
Same thing with these technologies, whether it's biomass fermentation, precision fermentation or whatever, it becomes an ingredient and goes into exact same system. And yet I think we are risking creation of too much fear factor, too much, oh, this is lab grown or this is engineered and I'm so worried because almost we're doing too much. Thanks for listening. Check out our first season on cell-based meat or cultured meat and our third season on the consumer acceptance of alternative proteins. A special thanks to Nikhil Menon for audio editing, senior audio editor Celeste Gupta, Haruka Sakurai for season research and Francisca Erbe for social media support. You'll find the team overview and their stories on red2green.solutions. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.